Well, this morning we're going to be concluding our more series uh, where we've been going through uh, basically the Bible and looking for what it is that God has really created us for. Uh, now, if you've lived in uh, our world for any time in our culture, you know that uh, Mick Jagger isn't the only guy that's tried and tried and found no satisfaction. Uh, we live in a culture full of people that are looking everywhere for pleasure, for happiness, for more of something. Uh, but we find that so often we come up empty. Well, I think that a lot of times what's happened is, is our desire for more has been shaped by some of the isms of our culture. Uh, so we've talked about uh, the fact that we have been shaped by uh, a number of realities, like for instance, uh, you know that materialism shapes us, that belief that all that matters is matter. Uh, others of us have also been influenced by uh, individualism uh, or this idea that the most important thing in life is our individual pursuits, not the pursuit of what is good for a community of people. Uh, we also have been shaped not just by those isms. Uh, we know that uh, we've, in addition, been shaped by consumerism or this idea that really, if we want to be happy, what we really just need is a little more stuff, right? If we just have a little bit newer car, a little bit better paying job, uh, that happiness that we all desire, what we want more of, is just right out of our, greet, our grasp, and we just need to grab onto it. Of course, uh, there is one final ism that we're going to talk about this morning briefly, and that's hedonism. Or this idea that really uh, we live life for as much pleasure as we can grab onto. And I believe that that idea of the desire to live life based on how much pleasure we can get, uh, whether that be through uh, food or drink or, or some other physical pleasure, uh, we know that that is not what the Scripture said we were ultimately made for. And as we think about this morning, the fact that we have been called and we have been made for more knowledge of God, we need to realize that that is going to be coming into conflict constantly with the desire that we have with instant pleasure. I mean, just think about it. Knowledge by its nature typically takes some thought, and that takes a little bit of work. And so if we're looking for instant gratification, we're going to be rubbing up against that all along the way as we seek to grow in our, our knowledge of the infinite God. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning, this thing that we've been called to, this greater uh, idea of the more knowledge of God. And here's what we need to know. Just like Mick Jagger or Judas or you and me, the worldly things that we chase will always leave us even emptier than, than when we began, when we capture them. In other words, all those things that we are chasing after, here's the big, here's the big bait and switch of all of it. If you win, you lose. Like if you get the thing that the world tells you will make you happy, once you grab onto it, you feel even emptier than when you started. But God tells us that He has a better plan for our lives. See, what I've been arguing all throughout this series, and come in close, I've been arguing that that desire that you have for more, that maybe is leaving you feel so empty, it's not bad in and of itself. I actually believe that God created you with that. The problem is not that we want more of something, it's that we're seeking for more of all the wrong things. And so what we really need to do is recalibrate our hearts towards God's glory and the things that God has made us to pursue more of. And specifically, the great pursuit we're talking about this morning is the more of God's knowledge of His will. And we see that in Colossians 1, 9 to 14, where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to see Paul writing to the Colossians, about how they ought to pursue more knowledge of God's will. Now, I think there are a couple of ironies in the fact that Paul is calling this church 
towards more of anything spiritual. A couple of ironies that ought to just strike us. I mean, for one, what we find is, is that Paul, when he writes this, is actually writing from a prison cell. Okay, just like Ephesians and Philemon, uh, we find that Colossians is actually written from a prison cell. And here we find Paul sitting in this prison cell. He is enslaved and he is writing about some of the most majestic visions of Jesus that we see in all of the Bible. About his power and greatness. And you have to just say, there's got to be something different and strange going on here. For a guy to be speaking about the supremacy of Jesus, is he sitting on the floor of a prison? Do you see it? Not only that, we see that he's uh, giving us a second irony in the fact that he is writing to these Colossians. I love what uh, the historic commentator J.B. Lightfoot says about these Colossians. He says these are actually the least significant people that Paul writes to or that anybody really writes about in all the Bible. I mean, they were a, a very insignificant people that he is calling to have this great knowledge of the grand will of God. And, and so as he's looking at them, he's saying, look, I, I know you're a new church and that you've just come to Christ. I know that a lot of you don't have much knowledge of God's will. I mean, you're just starting on your journey since Epaphras first shared Christ with you. But I want you to know that what you have been made for is more of the knowledge of God. And I'm not ashamed that I'm writing this from a prison cell. I've got a big plan for your life, a greater plan than what this world has for you. And I want you to get on board because you're going places for the glory of God. And friends, that's exactly the message that I believe Paul would have for our church this morning. And and the big idea that we're going to be talking about is this. So if you're taking notes, write, write this down. God wants us to know that more knowledge of God's will should mean increasing glory to God from our lives. As our knowledge of the will of God grows, what Paul says is, simultaneously, our lives ought to produce more glory to our God. That's what happens. There's a relationship between those two. Now we see this first in verse 9, where Paul prays for more knowledge of God's will. In verse 9. So, look there with me again in Colossians chapter 1. Now, our verses this morning, verses 9 to 14, they're actually just one sentence. I know we break it up with periods and stuff, but that's just to help us follow the ideas. It's really just one sentence where Paul explains a prayer request that he has for these Colossians. And catch this, he, he wants for them, for this Colossian people... He thanks God for their salvation, the verses just before this. And then he begins to share, catch this, he shares a window into his private prayer life. Now, I don't know if you have anybody that you want to model your prayers after. I think that if you're looking for somebody, the Apostle Paul is a pretty good place to start. And and here's what he says. He shares this untiring, unceasing, unremitting prayer for their lives that they would be as theologically driven as his prayers are. And here's what he says in verse 9. Colossians 1.9. Here's what he says. And so, from the day we heard of their salvation, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So here what we find is, is that Paul... Paul does something incredible. And take note, since Paul received word of the church that Epaphras has planted in Colossae, he has prayed ceaselessly for them. Do you see it? 
he begins praying. He hears they're saved, and he, he doesn't just sort of chalk up a notch and say, great, let's move on. He says, I, now I need to pray for them. And, and Paul, when he prays for them, what we find out is that he prays, he says, ceaselessly. Now, let me just explain what that doesn't mean. Now, when somebody says that they pray ceaselessly, that does not mean they wake up in the morning praying. They pray through lunch. They pray until they go to bed. And then they even pray in their dreams. That's not what he's saying there. Uh, And I think that's important to note because we need to know what real prayer looks like. See, what Paul is saying is, I put these guys in my prayer journal. And I I faithfully prayed daily, and and as it came to them, I prayed for them, and I did it regularly and consistently. And that's the way that Paul prays for these Colossians. And what does Paul request for these new Christians? Well, he asks God, he asks God to give them more knowledge of God's will. Now, that sounds like a huge request, doesn't it? But I think it's important just to pause for a minute And just clarify, what is it that Paul is actually praying for here when he asks for them to have more knowledge of God's will? What does that mean? Well, let me just start off by saying what it's not, okay? So so I think it's important here just to know what this is not talking about. Now, he is not asking for something that maybe most of your minds jump to, and, and, and probably the same kind of thing that I grew up believing and holding to. Uh, now, here's what he's not asking for. See, I grew up uh, reading guys like Henry Blackaby and uh, John Eldridge, and, and I, I got a lot out of uh, their readings, but also sometimes I found things that weren't necessarily helpful. And one of the things that I, I really struggled with early on was this idea that they taught about sort of God's blueprint for your life when he talks about the will of God. In other words, God has a uh, basic blueprint for your life, and and it would be described in this way. God has a perfect plan or blueprint for every individual's life, and your goal is to discover God's perfect plan and to discern the one correct choice that God has for him or her in each and every decision. Did you catch that? Each and every decision, I am trying to find God's perfect plan for my life. From the type of cereal that I first eat in the morning, to the person that I marry, to the job that I take, I am trying to discern God's perfect will for my life. So your life is about finding this perfect will, or what some call the center of God's will for your life. Now, I have a few problems with that. Um, one's just anecdotal. Uh, I grew up for the first 23 years of my life on this sort of program of understanding the will of God. And here's what happened to me. Um, I became a very anxious uh, and sad Christian because what I always ended up feeling like is I had always just kind of just missed God. Now, please hear me. What this is saying is not that Like, I chose to disobey God and there were consequences. What this means is, is that I can obey God, be obedient to His Word, and have many choices that could all be obedient to God's Word, 
And yet, there is one that's sort of the magical silver bullet of the center of God's will for my life. And if I miss that one, even if I make a godly decision, I have missed God's perfect will. I mean, maybe I hit the target, but I missed the bullseye. And so life for there, ever thereafter is going to be just a little bit less than what God could have done for me. Now, can you imagine for somebody who has like self-identity issues and is struggling with like security, how that could really just undo you? Like, I'm thinking, like, great, like, somewhere down along the, the road of life, like, I was trying to be obedient, I might have been, been walking, like, my best life now, and yet I made the wrong decision and missed God forever, and I am stuck, right? Well, friends, I want you to know that there's a second reason that I, I'm so glad that, um, that I don't believe this is the way that God speaks of His will for us. I, I don't think that uh, you need to be anxious or depressed or give up or be mean to people who may... Uh, maybe have made you miss God's will. Like, this, is not, this does not have to be your identity. Uh, I, I, I felt that way. I, I just was constantly feeling like I miss God, right? That's not what the Bible says. See, the second problem with this view is not just my anecdotal experience of depression, but second, the problem is that it's not biblical. This is not the way that God speaks of the way that he deals with you. God is not playing like hide-and-go-seek with his will with you. And he's like, if you're really good at hide-and-go-seek, then you're going to find me and find the center of God's will. And if not, then forever after, like, I'm sorry, but you're just going to be living less of a life than what you could have had. See, Bruce Walkie, speaking of this, says, Scripture never commands God's people to find or discover his will as if it were mysteriously hidden. And it never promises God intends to give it in every situation. You hear me? Like, you, you don't need to feel like you are looking for special knowledge in every situation and decision. doesn't mean that you don't pray, that you're not asking for God's leading, that you're not looking to Scripture. But it means that God doesn't like give up on you because you missed it. But there's a third reason I don't like this view, and that's it discourages the sufficiency of Scripture for equipping saints for every good work. See, if you're constantly having to look to Jesus and some kind of like special experience to confirm the decision that you've made, we're going to talk about good decision-making later. But if you're like constantly thinking to yourself, I've got to get some kind of special word from God, then all of a sudden you're not looking to God's revealed truth. You're looking for some special experience beyond it. And that means that this word is not sufficient for equipping us for every good work and pleasing God. Friends, the Bible is sufficient. He has given us His word. We can trust that it can lead us to bring glory to God. And we need to trust that with every decision that we make. So that's, not, that's what it's not. It's not seeking some kind of special knowledge from God. No, what it is though, what the knowledge of God's will is, is something quite different. And when we speak of God's will, usually we're speaking of it in the sense first of God's will of decree. And that speaks of, how, of what shall be. God's will of decree is what shall be. So Ephesians 1.11 speaks of this where Paul writes in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things after the counsel of His own will. Who was the Lord's counselor? The Lord. And nobody counseled the Lord on what to do. He, he knows best. And He does everything according to the counsel of His own will. See, God's will of decree is that decree that we are promised throughout the, the pages of Scripture will come to pass. Now this will, friends, it is largely hidden from us. But the Scriptures actually, at times, reveal God's 
will of decree after it's happened. Like, for instance, you remember Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph's brothers have sold him into slavery, and then they apologize for it, and Joseph forgives them. And do you remember how he explained the reason that he forgave them? He tells them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Do you see it? He he pulls back the veil to see the mind, the hidden mind of God. And when he gets back there, what he sees is something amazing. He says, those things that we saw played out in real time that were intended for evil for us, God was simultaneously at work, and despite your efforts, he was working them out for our good. You see it? Well, you do now, because he's shown it to us. Romans 8.28 tells us that that same God, the God of Joseph, works all things together for those who love God and are called according to His purposes. So that that same hand that we see revealed behind all of the evil intentions towards Joseph is working those for His good. God says, catch this, I, I have that same hand working for you behind the curtain, working all things together for your good. See, The Bible also reveals not only that hidden hand of God in the past, but He also reveals what God values in His decrees. Right? So so what is God like? What is His character like? Well, the Bible tells us this. The Bible tells us that God feeds scavenger birds like ravens and people. But even though He feeds both, He values people more because people were created in His image. And so we should expect that what God wants ultimately climaxes in the way that He views humanity. We see that on display in His Word. See, God's promises are decrees that will come to pass. Brothers and sisters, the promises that God has given us, has made to us and for us, they will come to pass. He's decreed it. There's nothing going to stop it. God will keep His promises. All of the vast and good promises that God has made for us, they shall come to be. And yet, what we find here is man is also mysteriously responsible for his sins. God's decrees come to pass. He is sovereign in authority. And man is responsible. and, And that's what the Bible teaches clearly. But that leads us to a second way that the Bible speaks of God's will. Uh, And that is, the Bible speaks of God's perceptive will. It speaks of what should be, right? So if the decretive will is what shall be, the perceptive will is what should be. Not always it, doesn't always come to fruition, right? So we see God's perceptive or moral will in Acts 17.30, where we are told that it is God's will that all men everywhere repent and believe the gospel. That's what God has told us. Every man ought to do this. But God did not decree that all men everywhere will be saved. We also see this in the fact that it's sin to steal, right? God has said, my will is that you do not steal. We see that in the Ten Commandments in the New Testament, bad to steal. And yet people steal, right? Well, why is that? Well, because he's given you his preceptive will. This is what ought to be, but because of sin, it doesn't always work that way. So that's different from his decreed will. Now here in Colossians 1.9, coming back to it, Paul tells these young Christians that he wants them to gain more and more knowledge of God's revealed will for them. 
So what is he talking about here? Well, as Peter O'Brien writes in his commentary, what Paul has in mind is not some special direction for one's life, but a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ and all that he means for the universe in verses 15 to 20. And for the Colossians, which we'll talk about in verses 21 to 23. In fact, all 15 of Paul's uses of this word for knowledge that he uses in this verse, in his letters elsewhere, speaks of the knowledge of God and Christ. He wants us to grow in our knowledge of who God is and who His Son Christ is and what that means for us. Now, when you hear that, what do you think about? Maybe you kind of shut down whenever you hear anything that that talks about learning or knowledge or makes you feel remotely like something to do with school. So like, for instance, uh, this past week, uh, Friday night, I was driving my boys to their football game. And all of a sudden, from the back of my car, I hear this voice going, boo, boo. I'm talking like passionate boo, right? I'm thinking, what in the world? Somebody doesn't like something. And I look up to the left, and there is their school. And I'm kind of shocked. I do a double take, and I look back, and I said, John, Johnny, is that you? And he said, yeah. I said, you don't like school? And he goes, no, of course not. Who likes school? Right? And then I asked Ben. I was like, Ben, is that right? He said, yeah, that's, that's pretty much right. I mean, now, catch me. As far as schools go, my kids love their school. But what it represents, like knowledge and working and thinking and having somebody have rules over you, like they just don't like that. And for some of us might have the same kind of response when we think about like reading the Bible and studying and getting to know who God is through his word. And yet, and yet, God has uniquely made you and me as creatures with minds. Minds that are creative like God's and able to learn and to know and to relate. And so God has made us pre-equipped with our basic human model to be able to think large, great thoughts about God in a way that, catch this, no other creature on earth can. God's made you to know Him, to relate to Him, to love Him. See, this is the kind of knowledge that God calls us to. This knowledge, catch me, is not a knowledge that is just like biological pistons firing and having you learn facts that you can regurgitate about God. Now, what we find about this knowledge, Paul tells us that it is a spirit-based knowledge, a spirit-driven knowledge. In other words, God is on the outside of this universe and he is working in this universe. He's not disconnected from it. And he is working in our minds and hearts to the glory of his name. See, this this knowledge, Marcus Bachmuel speaks of it, and he says it is a profoundly existential, relational, and responsive knowledge. It is something that, that is meaningful and deep. And he says this knowledge that Paul was speaking of, he was super passionate about it because it is the same knowledge that converts and grows Christians to new life. See, Jesus And this knowledge represents the blazing center and the climax of the expression of God's will for God's people in all of creation. If you want to know God's will for your life, we need to spend much time looking at Jesus, studying Christ, and seeing what that means for you. And if that bores you or you think you've already got it and you're like, why do I need to go back to that? You haven't studied it enough. 
The more that we know of Jesus, the more that we ought to be overwhelmed by how much we do not know and understand. Do you see it? The more of Him that we see, the more that we see there is of Him. The less that we see of Him, the less that we look at Him, the the smaller a vision we have of Him. Friends, as we bring Christ into focus, He does nothing but get larger. See, I, I take here this way that Paul describes it as being very important. Paul asks God, do you catch that? Paul asks God Himself to fill them with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He says, catch this, left to yourself, you can't know the things I want you to know about Christ. You need the Holy Spirit to lead you in seeing that. And I take wisdom and understanding here to be really just qualities in verse 9 that describe the nature of God's will for us. And and spiritual speaks of the source of the understanding and wisdom these Christians will need to navigate their individual and collective lives to the glory of God. We need to be led by God's Spirit itself towards the Christ of the Scriptures to be able to glorify God. And Paul's praying for what Jesus commanded His disciples to do in making disciples, right? That they would teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded in Matthew 28? And didn't Paul also pray this for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3? That they would be able to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ for them? Do you see it? He's like, you need the Spirit to be able to know the things that you need to know about Christ. I know some of you, as you think about this, this is difficult stuff. But hear me. Paul wants all of us to press into Christ and then live our lives out from there. I love what Charles Spurgeon writes when he writes of the significance of Christ. He, he says this, and, and listen close. He says, Rest not then content without an increasing acquaintance with Jesus. Seek to know more of Him in His divine nature, in His human relationships, in His finished work, in His death, in His resurrection, in His present glorious intercession, and in His future royal advent. Abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of His wounds. An increase of love to Jesus and a more perfect apprehension of His love to us is one of the best tests of growth in grace. You see it? You need to abide close to the cross of Christ and study the mystery of His wounds. But catch this too. Uh, Paul says that your life should change more and more as your knowledge of God's will increases. And he says this in verses 10 to 14. In other words, if you know God, your life should should change. There's, There's a relationship between the two. So, second thing we see here in this text is the purpose of growing is knowing God's will is looking like God's Son. The purpose of growing and knowing God's will is looking like God's Son. See, verse 10, it, it tells us the purpose of Paul's desire for them to be filled with this knowledge of God. Why does he want it? Why does he want them to be filled with the knowledge of God? In verse 10 he says, so as, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I get a little bit intimidated. 
When I, when I read that, I don't feel like that's like sort of a rally cry at first blush. At first blush, that feels more like um, sort of just one primary example of my shortcomings and failures. Those are the things that rush into my mind. I mean, it sounds daunting, maybe even impossible, this task for ordinary believers like you and me to live a life, catch this, worthy of Jesus, right? Like, really? Like, worthy of Jesus. That's, that's an incredible call to put on somebody's life. And even more so when we consider that Paul himself goes on to say incredible things about who Christ is in this very letter. I mean, he says, I want you to live a life worthy of Christ. And then, oh, by the way, let me tell you about who this Christ is that you're supposed to live a life worthy of. I mean, he, he goes on to say that this, this Christ, this Jesus that you speak of, created and sustains all things, both from the beginning and even now. And, and he spoke each and every molecule that exists into being. He set them in place and continues to sustain them as they rotate and revolve and connect with one another. He is the eternal Son of God who came to save us from our sins and seal us with His Holy Spirit to adopt us into God's family and to give us an internal inheritance before He returns to judge the living and the dead when He will bring that inheritance near to us. I mean, this is an incredible Christ. There is none like Him. There is none supreme as this Christ that Paul speaks of. And he says, I tell you what, I want you to live a life worthy of of that guy. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel almost even more discouraged as I think about the greatness of Jesus, if I'm not thinking about it rightly. I mean, this really reminds me a lot of uh, a show that I used to watch uh, occasionally called No Ordinary Family. I don't know if you've seen this, but it the joke is, is that the show is really about a, a very ordinary looking family. I mean, the dad has a dad bod, and yet he can lift like tow trucks, right? And so they're a family of superheroes that look incredibly ordinary and have been ordinary most of their lives. And, and so they're, they're doing these extraordinary things as ordinary people. And here I almost feel like I am being called to do extraordinary things for the name of God, even though I'm very ordinary when I understand the nature of my own heart. And here, what we're told is, is that we're to live a life worthy of the Christ with whom there is no parallel is those who are very ordinary people. Except for some of you, I'm sure, who are very special. But as for people like me, we're very normal and ordinary. And this can be intimidating. Maybe you're intimidated by being called to live in a manner worthy of the Lord this morning. And maybe this just reminds you of all the ways that you are unworthy. Maybe you're thinking of sins or failures, a lack of giftedness or... All kinds of things. Maybe you're wondering, how can someone as ordinary as me live a life that is worthy of God's will in Christ? Well, don't miss this, brothers and sisters in Christ. The same Jesus that set the standard met the standard. You catch that? The same Jesus that set the standard met the standard. And the same Spirit that led Jesus leads us. Do you see the hope in that? It's it's not leaving us ordinary and hopeless We have the Spirit of God to help us in Christ. The new covenant has broken out. The new creation has come forth. And we are the first fruits of that. We have that Spirit leading us. So walking in the manner of the Lord means being led by the Spirit that has been sealed on our hearts. So so the more that we know Christ through God's Word and with God's people, by the power of God's Spirit, the more our lives look like it. God, He created 
All things good. That's the story of God. See, if we know God's story and we understand where we fit in it, we see that this calling is an amazing rallying point for those who have been saved by God. See, we know that all men, God created them. He created all things out of nothing and created us. And He did it good. In fact, we're told that man and woman were created and it was very good. We are the pinnacle of His creation. And yet in Genesis 3, as soon as we drop on the scene, we sin against our good God. And really the rest of the Old Testament tells us about the the reality that even if God gives us the rule book, we can't please God. Do, Do you see it? The Old Testament leaves us desperate for meaning for humanity. It's like we can't do what God's called us to do. You you almost wonder, are we so broken we can't be fixed? And then what we find is something startling. A new man shows up in the scene in the New Testament. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And this man comes and he is baptized by John the Baptist in Matthew 3. And do you remember what happens in Matthew 3 whenever the heavens are rent open and God the Father speaks down to God the Son? Do you remember what He says to Him? He says, behold, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I haven't been happy in a long time and now in Christ I am pleased with this one. And here's the good news. All of those who are united by faith to this beloved one, you please me too. And I'm not talking about like a little bit of happiness where I'm sort of grimacing and turning away from you. Because I can't look at you, but I know I'm supposed to love at you. God gazes on us, and He sees us in Christ. And the love that He has for Christ, it is poured out on you and me. Do you see that? Guys, this is good news. We're going to have to wake up on Sunday morning. That's the place where we say amen every time. His love poured out on us in full display. That's the love that God has for you and me. So when we look at the calling to live a life that is worthy of Jesus... And that is fully pleasing to God. We rejoice because of what Jesus has done. Do you see it? We're not distracted by the fact that we are sinners. Uh, that, that sin actually propels us into being more grateful for Christ and His work on our behalf. He is the better sacrifice. He is our better priest today. And catch what that means for you and me. This means that we can please God in Christ. Now I know that we really do Sin is Christians. But the message of the New Testament is that we really don't have to sin anymore. Sin no longer has dominion over us who are under the dominion of King Jesus. And I think that's why Paul reminds us in verses 13 to 14 that when we put our faith in Jesus, he fills out our change of address form for us because he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have what? Redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Do you see it? And if we've been redeemed and forgiven, we can please God. That's what that means. So you are no longer defined, brothers and sisters. You're no longer defined in the ways that your heart lies to you and tells you that you are. Our identity is wrapped up in Jesus when we put our faith in Christ. And that means that you are no longer defined by the idols of your heart, the things that you love more than Jesus that you shouldn't. Things like the the, the power that you desire over, over everything and everybody, the, the control, the way that you want to control everything, the way that you uh, seek comfort and you just don't want anybody to bother you. You're, you're, you're not defined by those things. You're not defined by your past sins. You're not defined by your present sin struggles or your failures or your imperfections or your doubts or your fears. If you are in Christ, you are defined by your relationship to Christ 
and are fully a receiver of His promises. And God sees you as a citizen of the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom you have redemption and forgiveness. And maybe that's not the way that your wife, your kids, your friends, or your boss, or your enemies make you feel. But friends, that is a current and real state of affairs according to Jesus Christ and His Word. And if you're, if you're having to choose today between a voice that you're going to listen to, and that's the voice of your enemy or the voice of your friend Jesus, you go with Jesus every time. If it's the, the voice of your best friend, if it's the voice of your spouse, the voice of Jesus is more important, friends. That is the one that defines you. And what that means is we don't have to be angry anymore. We don't have to be angry when people don't think well of us because Jesus has given us a better reality than anything anyone else can take from us. Do you see it? We're children of the King. We inherit with Him all that is to come. But there's a third thing that we see here. And that is the kind of life that has been shaped by this knowledge of Jesus. What does that look like? Well, He tells us. He gives us four ways that we can see this this knowledge of God growing in us and us growing in it. And and He goes on to give basically four ways or four things that we will see more of in our lives as we grow in the knowledge of God's will. And those are in basically 10b down to 14. Now the first one comes at the end of 10 where it says we should expect more and more fruit. Right? We've heard this before. We should expect more and more fruit. I guess Paul's listening to Jesus, right, from, from John 15. Like, if, if we're connected to the good root, we should expect good fruit. He says there that it is his will that we are bearing fruit, that we will bear fruit in every good work. Now, think about it. You might not see more there, but if you're bearing fruit, that means you're continuously bearing fruit. You're a fruitful tree, and so you're constantly getting more and more fruit. And you should expect to see more and more fruit in your life. I think this is really interesting that he brings out new fruit here. Because as you'll remember, God created all things. Uh, we sinned against him. And what we found is, is that though we were created to multiply and fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, uh, instead, uh, what we find is, is that we just kept on dying after Genesis 3. We just continue to, to produce death. Until Jesus. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he says, guess what? Uh, I am the new creation breaking out, and now you can produce fruit again. You can be fruitful and multiply so long as you are united to me, the good root. And you should expect good fruit in your life. And so here we find a couple of things. One is that work, work isn't bad and work isn't a curse. See, in the garden, work was created before the fall, and it was a good thing. And you know that it's fun to work when you're fruitful. Work is good, but we have two problems when it comes to work. One is that we're idle, and the other is that we're idolatrous, right? Either we get lazy and idle, and we don't work like God has made us to, or we're idolatrous, and we worship our work, and we find our identity in it, rather than finding our identity in Jesus. But here, the more that we find our identity in Christ, he tells us the more that you are going to be fruitful in your, in your life spiritually. In other words... If you start trying to find your identity in your job apart from Jesus, then that job is going to start to produce death in things. It's going to produce death in your family. It's going to produce death in your personality because you become maybe arrogant because you think you're really good at your job. Or you're going to be discouraged and depressed because you think you're bad at your job and you think that your identity is based on how you do at your job. 
Rather than understanding that your identity is ultimately wrapped up in who Jesus is and what he has done for you and who he has made you in Christ, a child of the living God and heir to the kingdom. You see it? You see how quickly if we start finding our identity in other things and we miss Jesus, things start to die and fall apart. But the more that we start to find our identity in Christ, the more that we're able to help others and speak into the lives of others and point others towards Jesus producing fruit to the glory of God's name. See, that's what God has made us for. Once our identity is firmly grounded in Christ, God puts us to work with the hope that we can be fruitful in every good work. In other words, if we're connected to the good root, we will produce good fruit. And I I take this fruit, as I've said before, to include all kinds of things. Fruits of the Spirit, obedience to God's Word, sacrificial love for one another, a witness to unbelievers. We will produce more and more fruit. Uh, We we also see in verse 10 a second thing that he says that we'll grow in, and that's more and more knowledge. Did you notice that? As you grow in the knowledge of God's will as expressed in Christ, that you will increase in the knowledge of God. See, we'll all progressively grow in our knowledge of Christ and what it means for our identity and our identity and the identity of others. We will look at ourselves and others Differently, more and more, the more clearly that we see Christ, the more clearly that He comes into view. So if our understanding of Christ does not amplify our love, if the more that we study God's Word and we get to know God, we don't find ourselves loving others more and better, then it could be that we have started seeking a knowledge of God for other reasons than what God intended. See, the knowledge of God in Christ ought to make us more loving. It ought to break us. It ought to show us the love that God has shown for us and startle us with that love and give us a heart and desire to love others with the same kind of humility and mercy that God has shown for us. And if we don't see that breaking out more and more in our lives, then it could be that we've started to use the knowledge of God, even the knowledge of God's Word, for something other than what God intends. It's some kind of way to maybe wield power or control rather than to be controlled by the Spirit of God. You see it? And so we need to make sure that we're constantly, humbly coming before the Word of God, praying that our hearts wouldn't be hardened before it, but that they would be softened to love others. See, we don't learn to grasp more power or control for ourselves. No, we, we love to learn because we learn to love. You see it? We love to learn because we learn to love. That's the reason that we're learning is so that we can be more loving in the way that Christ has loved us. I mean, if we really have beheld the love of Jesus on display for you and me, and seeing the, bl- the beauty and the glory of that love, it is compelling. It, wa- it wants to change us. And it makes us want to be changed. And this morning, if, if you are tired and bored before the Lord, and you do not want to be changed, you need to see more of Christ. The more that we see of Christ, the more that it's not just that we're told we must be transformed. It's that we want to be transformed. You see it? Like that's what God's calling us to. Not only that, we see that we're promised more power in verse 11. When he says, may you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So you'll notice that we will have more power that comes straight from God's glorious might to patiently and joyfully endure until Jesus gets back. It reminds me of the story of Jonathan Edwards. I've told you this recently, where he was fired from his church after serving for 24 years and being one of the influential leaders in the First Great Awakening. And it was in that period 
that he was fired from his church. And one outside witness observed him during this whole process as he was watching him, learning from his life. And he said of, of Jonathan Edwards as he was losing his, his pastorate, he said, he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good, overbalancing all imaginable ills of life, even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismission. Do you see it? I mean, there was a strength of God in his ability to be joyful even amidst difficult circumstances that was not of this world. And others saw it. And do you see it? See, God's strength could be seen in his astonishing patiently enduring joy amidst suffering. Friends, that's some of the places where God's power is most on display. You know, most of us would love to feed 5,000 and show God's power in that way. But so many of us will show God's power in our weakness and our suffering to the glory of His name. And, and we do it with great joy and it shows that it's from God. But there's a final thing, a fourth thing that he says here about this growth that we should expect, and that's that we be a more thankful people in verses 12 to 14. He says that they are giving thanks to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. See, if we really understand the knowledge of God's will, we will be more thankful in general. Why? more and more we will understand the greatness of our deliverance. I'm not startled by the, I'm more startled by the love of God sending His Son to save me today than I ever have been. And that He would give His Son to redeem me and forgive me for, for my sins. It's mind-boggling. And friends, that's the thing that ought to more and more capture our hearts and affections as well as our lives. So, you're looking to grow in the knowledge of God's will. <clears throat> Let me just close with some real quick thoughts on how we ought to make godly decisions seeking God's will above our own. And I'm just going to go through these pretty quickly. So just write these down. I've, I've talked about some of these before. But I just want you to think about these. If you're, looking, if you're making an important decision, you know, you're thinking, and, and if you're not, then you will. So just go ahead and write these down. And so first is continue growing in your knowledge of Christ in the Bible. This is how God has chosen to reveal Himself to us is through His Word. Uh, there's no kind of um, authentic Christianity that is not centered on God's Word. God's sheep listen to God's voice. And so we need to constantly look to God's Word and study God's Word, looking for His promises. Uh, if you'd like to study the promises of God, you're wondering, what do the promises of God look like for me? Uh, Joshua Griever is going to be leading, leading us through a six-week study right after our biblical council class on the promises of God. We'll help you recalibrate your hearts to look towards what God has promised for you. Uh, come and take one of our Sunday school classes. We have all kinds of equipping classes for the purpose of getting you ready uh, to know the will of God for your life. Two, grow in trusting God's hidden will for you, that it is good. You, you don't know God's decrees uh, all of God's decrees for you. You don't know all the things that are going to happen to you even today. You will not always see God's hand. You will not always hear Him explain why He has done what He has done in your life. But learn to trust that all things really do work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. That God really does pl plan to restore all that we have lost and more. Trust God. Trust God's 
hand even when you can't see his face. Trust what he has done for you. Third, kill the idols in your life. Kill the idols in your life. Most of our bad decisions are made because we love something more than Jesus, something that is driving us to make decisions that don't glorify him, and they usually end up badly. So what are the things that we love too much? What are the things that wield way too much influence over our lives, more influence than Jesus? You know, maybe it's your desire for a spouse. Maybe it's your desire for a new spouse. Maybe it's your desire for a new job. Maybe it's your desire for retirement. I don't know what it is. And then, you know, there might even be a thing under that thing that's driving you. Like, uh, maybe your desire for retirement is really a desire for comfort, and you worship comfort, and you would kill anybody to get comfort, right? Because every God needs a sacrifice. So find those idols in your life. And if you need help with that, we have some great resources that we could point you to. Uh, We also have a, a biblical council class that would be great for you to come to on Wednesdays. Fifth, or four, or fifth, yes, pray for wisdom. You know, Paul says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. When he says ask for wisdom, he's not, say, he's not asking for a special kind of knowledge. He's asking for a special kind of life that reflects a love for Jesus. So if you lack wisdom, ask, ask and God will give it. He's given you his spirit. He loves to lead you in truth. Sixth, seek godly counsel. Seek godly counsel. God has gifted the church with elders. You also have other Christians around you who love you and love God's word. Take advantage of that. Find a community group. Uh, Put yourself in places where you can seek godly counsel from others. Seventh, do something. Don't be paralyzed, worrying if you're going to miss God. Like, know what God's Word says. Get counsel. Make a decision and trust God. Don't look to the consequences of your decision and, and try to interpret what God has done. Like, just trust that you have made a godly decision, that God is pleased with you, and God's at work in your life. So do something. Don't just stand there. And eighth, Rejoice. Rejoice. might sound like that's hard to do when you find yourself at different places in life, but I believe that Paul meant this when he wrote from a number of prison cells, encouraging us, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I said rejoice. And if he could rejoice in a prison cell, then surely we can rejoice in whatever situation we find ourselves in to the glory of God. So do those eight things, and I believe that you will be well on the way to finding God's will for your life and also glorifying Him with all that's in you. Well, one of the things that we've been doing is we've been going through the series asking for more, more of what God wants for us, is we've asked people, a variety of people to come up and share their testimony. And uh, at this time, we've asked uh, Scott Schneider to come and share with us. Uh, just so you know, Scott is a brother that uh, was really one of the first guys I met on the ground when I showed up in Phoenix. And he and Renee um, showed Kieran around, showed us houses, and uh, we were pretty much sold on coming after being with them. Because uh, they just have such an infectious personality, loving people, and we just are very grateful for them. One of the things that's been so encouraging over the past seven years, is just or six and a half years, is seeing this guy uh, and his wife just grow in Christ, loving Jesus, loving his church. And so I just asked him if he would come and share with us about how the Lord has encouraged him to pursue knowing God's will more and more. So, brother, thanks for sharing with us, and we're looking forward to it. Thank you, Josh. All right, man. You can give him a hand if you want. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was a, a, a powerful word of God this morning, and I just uh, am very thankful all the time that I can come to uh, Trinity Bible uh, for the last 27 years and hear uh, the word preached. Um, my, uh, yes, it's been 27 years now. My wife and I raised two children's he- children here. Uh, they're now 25 and 22 years old. 
Um, both kids grew up here at Trinity Bible Church, and they've, uh, they grew up in Sunday school. They grew up in wonderful Wednesdays. Uh, Renee, my wife, taught children's ministry and women's Bible study for years. Um, I was a hard-working dad, had two jobs, a uh, firefighter and a realtor for years, and I worked 76 hours a week for years. Um, for me personally, I couldn't commit or didn't make enough time to commit to Sunday, anything more than just Sundays uh, during that time, and I didn't grow very much uh, in my walk with Christ. Uh, we, we did great as a family. Um, I, I was a Christian, and, but uh, um, it, just, it just wasn't enough, and I didn't know it. Um, I had finally retired from the fire department seven years ago, so now that I only have worked one job in the last seven years, and um, I still didn't change my, my study habits, uh, didn't change the way I grew in God until last year. Um, last year was a, a very big moment for me in my growth in Christ. Um, I, it was just a simple little thing. I, I, I started noticing that our church here at Trinity Bible was a healthier church than it ever had been before. And I saw that this was my opportunity to change uh, the way I've been growing over the last 27 years here. Um, so I took that opportunity um, and started engaging myself uh, more with personal relationships, uh, community groups, um, and the one little thing that, that helped the most was feeding myself with God's Word, and that was attending Sunday school. Um, I, found it, I found that we have incredible teachers here at Trinity Bible Church. Um, our teachers are, they do this professionally. They, they teach God's Word in universities, and we have them here attending our church and leading our church. Um, I saw that as an opportunity, I, 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 uh, and so I started uh, engaging um, and I found myself being very excited about God's Word. It was a new found excitement um, that uh, I've developed quite an appetite for. Um, and so it, it made me it made me start reading at home. Um, it made me start being more involved at church. Um, I've, uh, I've recently plugged into all of the educational opportunities that Trinity's been uh, uh, advertising here. Um, I started uh, plugging into the, the, the equipped classes, the E2 and the E3 classes. Um, and I've really been strengthened by knowing God better lately. Um, it gets me excited for our church, and it opens my eyes more every day. Um, I love my God. And I love my church.